Great. Today I am talking with Walter Chacon. Uh, he is a rising senior from Lynn, Massachusetts, here at Bowdoin, and he is a major in sociology and a minor in education studies. Um, but he is considering, and this is a shameless plug, um, the brand new coordinate major in education. So he could be a sociology and education major. Um, and this summer he's here working in admissions and working on some of his research project that he will um, talk to you about in preparation for his honors work next year. So, hello. Hi. Um, I feel like I haven't seen, well I saw you on campus a little bit while I was on sabbatical. Yeah, a little I, bit. <laughs> I did get to have a little like catch in, check up with you and say hello, hello. Mm. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about what your experience with Mellon was like, and we'll talk about, for those people who don't know what the Mellon program is, we'll make sure we talk about that later on. Um, but let's start, I always am asking people three questions, and I will be responsible for getting us through those questions, and they are, what's most important to you? What does a liberal arts education mean to you? And what do you wish professors knew about you? And so that's kind of the end of the weird beginning preamble, and now we're just going to talk. So, Great. what's most important to you, Walter? Um, I guess, um, especially um, being here um, at Bowdoin, it's really important to me that I um, gain the skills and tools needed to be able to compete with my peers for um, either jobs or other opportunities uh, later in life. Mm. I really want to use my education um, as a mechanism to put me on an equal playing field um, with people from a whole variety of uh, different backgrounds. That's interesting that you talk about... I think you're maybe the first person I've spoken with so far who's used the word compete. And I'm curious um, if you feel like you are competing while you are here at Bowdoin. Not necessarily. I feel um, that I'm able to collaborate a lot with my peers mm -hmm. um, and faculty members, um, but I think ultimately when I'll be applying for jobs outside of, outside mm -hmm. of um, Bowdoin once I graduate, um, I'm really hoping to build the tools and the skills that will help me to compete with people who don't come from Bowdoin, who might mm -hmm. come from larger universities, who might have yeah. different skill sets, but I'd like yeah. to be able um, to sort of showcase my own skills um, that I've gained at college to um, yeah. I guess gain desirable um, social positions, whether that's um, a job or um, a research fellowship mm -hmm. or really anything um, the like. Did you feel like you came into Bowdoin on an equal playing field? I think in a lot of ways um, I was overprepared, um, and huh. in some other ways I was underprepared. Can you do you mind talking about those and how? Yeah, that yeah definitely. Um, so I think um, I was really. Um, able to transition academically um, very easily. I went to a private boarding prep school um, that had really rigorous academics and people would always say that um, my time in high school would be a lot harder than my time in college. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for the first two years that was true in a lot of ways, especially academically. Yep. Um, so the academic transition um, wasn't an issue for me. Um, and also living at school for grades 9 through 12, um, the transition to having a lot of independence um, and living away from home and mm. being really responsible for myself, that wasn't an, an issue at all. That was something that I really appreciated um, having in high school, uh, and I was able to translate that to college. Um, what was it like for you to go from living at home to living 
a boarding school? Uh, so it was um, really uh, pretty easy for me, actually. I think it was something that I was really craving. Um, I really, really valued having a lot of independence, um, and I really was able to find independence um, living away from home um, at my boarding school. I was actually about 40 minutes away from school, mm -hmm. so I was, I was a local boarder. Um, so I was okay. far enough that I was able to be a boarding student, but close enough that I had my family there when I, yeah. when I wanted to go home. Were they supportive of you going to uh, boarding school? Was that something that other f members of your family had done before? Never. Um, so I was the first person to go to um, a private school at that in my family. Um, and my parents were really supportive um, because they really knew that this would be a great opportunity that would help me mm -hmm. um, to achieve more later in life. So they were completely behind me in, in my um, sort of decision to apply to boarding schools and yeah. then my ultimate decision to leave home and yeah. um, go to school. What's shifted for you um, at Bowdoin between your first year and sophomore year and now, and so your last year as a junior and looking towards your senior year um, when you said that you felt like you were a little bit overprepared and that high school perhaps might have been more difficult than Bowdoin um, for your first two years here. What shifted to make it so you were experiencing ac academic challenges? Um, I think especially during my junior year um, I had the flexibility to choose more of my courses um, so I really tailored my education to my own interests mm. um, and part of that was um, making one of my four, four courses an independent study um, so I really sort of led the charge on, on my responsibilities in that way. And I um, think in a lot of ways my independent study was my hardest course um, because it was, um, it was really on me to, to push myself to work as much or as little as I wanted to. Um, and I put in a lot of work to make it um, sort of the best project that it could be. Um, and in that way, I sort of put more responsibility on mm. myself. Can you talk a little bit about what you did for your independent study and both what you were studying and the product you created at the end? Definitely. Or the, and maybe the process, too. Yeah, so it was a long process. Um, I um, conducted my independent study in the fall and in the spring of my mm -hmm. junior year. Um, and essentially, I'm looking at the experiences of African-American and Latino students in predominantly white and affluent educational institutions, both at the secondary level and at the post-secondary level. In the fall, um, I collected data by interviewing Bowdoin students who are alumni of boarding prep schools oh. about their experiences in high school. How, so, many, how many did you interview? So I interviewed 10 Bowdoin students. Um, I used the snowball method of recruitment, mm -hmm. so I sort of reached out to students that I knew um, were from boarding prep schools, um, and then I asked them to connect me with other students that I already didn't know. So in total, I uh, reached out to 11 students, and 10 students agreed okay. to um, speak with me for Great. my project. Great. And I interviewed them on their academic experiences tran transitioning to the school, um, as well as their sort of social and cultural experiences mm. um, transitioning to an environment that was different for um, the vast majority of the students whom I interviewed. Did they seem to have a uniform experience um, similar to yours that they had um, felt that they felt well prepared um, and on equal footing, if not um, at an advantage at Bowdoin, or, or, was the, or were their responses more varied? Um, there were definitely variations in the responses, um, but there were a lot of similarities between the 10 students mm. um, I spoke with. 
Um, I'd say that most students noted that they were prepared academically after attending boarding prep schools um, that offered rigorous um, academics um, and workloads that um, really prepared them for what they would encounter at mm -hmm. Bowdoin. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, Bowdoin itself is a um, prestigious, predominantly white, largely affluent institution. Um, so students um, who went to similar um, boarding prep schools mm -hmm. were exposed to sort of the similar demographics of students. Um, and in that way, they were sort of um, primed for what they would continue to experience at the college yep. level. Um, what does that mean to be primed for it? Or And I wonder if you asked this kind of question or if you ended up having this kind of kind of conversation with people you interviewed is are students are Bowdoin students of color or black and Latino students who come from prep schools that were predominantly white and affluent are they um, more or less activist do you think because of because of their experience prior to Bowdoin, um, that they may have had a smoother transition, that it may not have been such a shock to the system to come to mm -hmm. a place that um, both in numbers is predominantly um, white, maybe not predominantly affluent, but definitely predominantly white, but also a place of great privilege regardless of the, the sort of socioeconomic background mm -hmm. of the individual students. I don't think that um, students who came from boarding prep schools are um, more sort of active in terms of like social, mm -hmm. social movements in particular, um, but I do think that students who came from environments that um, often mirrored um, that of Bowdoin mm -hmm. were at the least not surprised at what they mm -hmm. encountered and what they yeah. experienced coming to Bowdoin. Um, and at the most, I think that students who were exposed to um, environments like Bowdoin at the high school level um, were better able to um, navigate the environment of the school, mm -hmm. whether that's social or cultural. Did they end up serving as, again, I recognize you may not have asked this question, um, but I'm curious, if they, if students in this demographic ended up serving as cultural brokers um, or cultural translators or bridges um, between students of color who may have not come from um, environments similar to Bowdoin and um, white students or people mm -hmm. um, who are coming from um, socioeconomic backgrounds of privilege. I don't think that uh, the students I interviewed um, were cultural brokers, but instead I think that because of their experiences in high school, they could understand um, that students are coming from very different places mm -hmm. and can understand why students of color might um, have difficulties um, that are specific to them in this mm -hmm. environment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So at the least they can sort of see um, that students coming from different backgrounds will navigate voting differently. Um, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's that sense of a, a displacement of recognizing, oh right, you know, this experience is not going to be... Um, one where we all travel the same path or all mm -hmm. or a particular thing affects us the same way definitely huh okay so i've totally interrupted you that's only one small part mm -hmm. of your independent study yeah
keep going. Um, so that was what I um, Do you did know in the fall where, semester. I, I'm impressed that you still know where what you were talking about. So you interviewed yeah. the so you interviewed the students who had gone to um, sort of prestigious prep schools mm-hmm. first semester. Okay. And in the second semester, um, I gained access to a boarding prep school, and I was able to talk with African American and Latino students at the boarding prep school prep school about their experiences there. So I spent um, one Sunday at the school in the office of. Uh, well, in the multicultural office, mm-hmm. um, speaking with students in focus groups. So I had three focus groups of about five students each. Very cool. What did you learn? Um, so there were a few things I learned. Um, there were a lot of support services that already exist for um, students of color at the school, um, but there are definitely ways um, to improve those programs. Um, a big conclusion I came to um, was that it's very important for those leading the support programs, both students and faculty members, to have some level of cultural competency. Um, if those leading the program aren't aware of the issues or the struggles that students of color in uh, predominantly white and very privileged spaces um, have, then they're not in a strong position to offer support to those students. Mm. How do you define cultural competency? Um, well, I um, spoke about how um, the students I interviewed define cultural competency. Okay, fine. Um, they, um, in essence, talked about being woke. Um, mm-hmm. And to those students, um, that is essentially to understand that um, students from different backgrounds navigate the world differently, especially when it comes to race um, mm-hmm. in a country that is predominantly white. Um, students described uh, being woke as... Um, well, for, for faculty members, mm-hmm. faculty, woke faculty members could um, have students do readings on um, issues of race in the United States mm-hmm. to at the least broaden students' horizons and um, let students know um, that there are issues that um, some subsections of the population face, um, though not all students face them. Great. What new questions did you come up with? Uh, after or what were you I still finished, wondering, you know, or was troubling mm-hmm. you? Uh, so I sort of um, took what I um, found in my independent study and what I've noticed here at Bowdoin um, to sort of form some new questions that I'm asking as okay. I pursue my honors project next year. Will you share them? Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what the focus of my project will be. That's mm-hmm. largely a task for me this summer. Um, but... I guess I'm um, looking a lot at the work of Anthony Abraham Jack, who um, is a sociologist who is now finishing his graduate work at Harvard. Um, And he looks into what he calls the privileged poor compared to the doubly disadvantaged. Um, The privileged poor um, Mm. are students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, which largely overlaps with African-American and Latino students. Um, who enter prestigious colleges um, coming from prestigious prep schools. Um, so these students have um, the advantage of already being exposed to the expectations of prestigious schools, um, though they come from uh, the lo- lower socioeconomic class or um, are African American or Latino. So they're exposed to the expectations, so in that way they have an advantage. Um, and he compares 
that to students who are doubly disadvantaged, students who might be um, from low-income backgrounds or African-American or Latino who enter prestigious schools without the same, these same experiences mm -hmm. and without this same exposure um, to the expectations of prestigious schools. So in that way, these students are doubly disadvantaged. That's fascinating. And so when we talked, when you were just at the very beginning, this was two years, was this two years ago now or one year ago? Oh, it was two years ago. About, yeah. um, when we started talking about the questions you were asking mm -hmm. um, and you wanted, or the, the questions you wanted to pursue, you had, didn't have access to that conceptual framework, did no, you? No, definitely not. Yeah, that's something I found um, as I was um, researching for my independent study during my junior year. That's great. And so you found this last year. Mm -hmm. Have you gone and met with him? No, I haven't. Um, I think um, I do have a friend from high school yes. who knows him, so I'm hoping to be able to reach out to him at some point this summer, um, yes. or especially before I start my honors project, um, to sort of at least pick his brain and see if he has uh, research directions that might be useful for me. Absolutely, and you can just email him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have found his contact information. Okay, good. I was going to say, academics love nothing more than to know that someone is interested in, using their work, finding it helpful. Mm. So it will not be an imposition. He Definitely. will be excited. And you guys should get together and meet, probably, since we're so close. Yeah, definitely. You could even invite him up here to come do a talk. Oh, yeah, that would be really right? interesting. Yeah, that would be great. You let me know. I'll work on okay. that with you. All right. Um, um, and I guess so. Yeah. That, um, the idea of the doubly disadvantaged yep. um, compared to the privileged poor um, is one part of what I want to pursue. Um, and I really want to look at uh, where the sources of diversity come from in uh, prestigious institutions of higher education. Mm. Um, a lot of his work um, sort of concludes that uh, prestigious schools are getting a lot of their diversity from already privileged places, students who are, quote, okay. the privileged poor. Um, and I'm asking if um, institutions of higher education are getting a lot of their diversity from places that are already very privileged, then is that real diversity? Is that the type of diversity that educational institutions um, should strive for? I don't know the answer to these questions, and mm -hmm. I guess these are some of the questions that um, I want to focus my next project on. I love it. It's fantastic. Um, who are you working with in sociology? Who, who has been guiding you through this process? So during uh, my junior year, I worked with Professor Emeritus Craig McEwen. Um, he was a sociology professor here at Bowdoin. Um, he's now retired, but still... In his own words, he's bad at being retired. Um, <laughs> so he actually advised me and one other student on our independent projects oh. um, during this past year. What a privilege to get yeah, to work definitely. with Professor McEwen. Yes. Yeah, and I was uh, connected to him by Professor Matt Klingle. I worked yes. as his research assistant okay. during my sophomore year and Great. the following summer. Um, and he connected me with Professor McEwen, who has been able to devote a lot of attention to my own project. And I've definitely benefited a lot from that. What a wonderful resource. Yeah. And he's also um, helped to connect me with um, Professor Ingrid Nelson in mm -hmm. sociology. She, yes. she um, specializes in sociology of education. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be taking a class with her next semester on race and ethnicity. And she will likely, um, if not my actual honors advisor, um, she'll at least be a reader for my project. Wonderful. That's incredibly exciting. Um, maybe we'll talk to you about if I can help you at all next year, Great, then yeah. I'll be back. Um, and especially if you're going to become a sociology and education major, we may need to talk. Definitely. Um, so 
what um, what do you tell students who come to admissions and you are interviewing them? I'm sure you always end with, and do you have any questions for me? Or you say, what makes you want to come to Bowdoin? Or, and then I'm sure you end up sharing some of your experience where they might ask you questions. Mm-hmm. Is that true? I don't know. I don't yes. know what happens. In an, maybe let's talk about what happens in an admissions interview. Do you mind saying that? Are you allowed to say that? Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Okay. That's um, part, well, part of my job is keeping everything that I do in terms of like students and like content yes. confidential. Yes. Um, I can talk about some sort of um, things that I like to talk about in interviews. Great. Um, so it, this is really up to whoever whoever wants it, whoever is interviewing. They everybody mm-hmm. has their own style, really. Okay. Um, but I, for the most part, um, talk about sort of where a student comes from. Their their family background, mm-hmm. um, how they relate to their family members. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I often talk about um, their current school, how they mm-hmm. like their school, how they like the culture of their school, um, and the community of their school, and whether or not there are things that they would like to change about their school. Mm-hmm. Um, I also ask students um, what, what interests them in the classroom, whether there are particular courses um, or projects that they've been able to work on that have... Um, been a passion of theirs um, in their time in high school. Um, I also talk about uh, what students are looking forward to in their last year of high school and um, what they're hoping to find at the college level. Um, And in addition, I um, often talk to a lot of students about what kind of development they hope to see in in themselves um, in their last year of high school and at the college level. Why do you start with the background of where are you from What's your relationship like with your family? Um, at, th- at the least, that gets um, students talking and helps them mm-hmm. to feel more comfortable because they can, they can easily talk about um, their family because right. they know their family right. um, well for the most part. Um, so it's a way for students to sort of um, start to feel more comfortable in the Got interview. Um, and it also sort of tells me a little bit about where they're coming from. Um, if they have any unusual family circumstances, then that would be a place where it would mm-hmm. come up in the interview mm-hmm. so that I'm aware of um, the, the social circumstances mm-hmm. from which they're coming. So, right. So, as a sociologist um, and someone who's experienced, you know, and who's both as someone who's looking at these things from an academic and research perspective and who's living these things, mm-hmm. how does where you come from affect your experience of school? I think in a lot of ways, the independent research that I've been pursuing um, has allowed me to study my own educational trajectory. Um, Can you talk a little bit about where you come from and your family background? Look, I just gave you your own admissions questions back to you. Yeah, perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, um, I've lived in Lynn, Massachusetts for nearly all of my life. I was born in Boston, but um, soon thereafter moved to Lynn. Um, Lynn is a city that's predominantly Latino and African American. Um, there is a white population, but in Lynn, um, the, the white population is the minority. Okay. Um, and the public school system in Lynn um, is not one that often prepares students well um, academically um, to pursue higher education. Um, it's definitely been improving in recent years, um, but the, Lynn is not known to have a strong sort of public education mm-hmm. system. Um, and 
in which my Which is strange school. because also Massachusetts overall is Definitely. known for having very strong public yeah. education, but Lynn mm-hmm. has not been brought along. Definitely, and I think um, that that over, over well that correlates um, with its um, racial and socioeconomic mm-hmm. um, uh, demographics. Um, and in, I went to public school in Lynn um, through fifth grade, um, and I excelled in public school. Um, I wasn't uh, particularly challenged um, in a lot of my courses, and I could, um, I definitely sort of put in um, the effort to um, do well in school, but I wasn't often challenged. Um, and in fifth grade, representatives from a private school uh, that was two towns over um, came to my school and essentially looked for students that might do well in a more rigorous academic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, two students from my school, um, one another student, um, and I ended up attending um, the private school um, in middle school. Um, it was about a 25-minute drive from my house mm-hmm. um, each day, and uh, my family supported me in actually getting me to school mm-hmm. and back every single day. Um, the school was in a small town um, that was nearly all white and um, very affluent. Mm-hmm. Um, so in making that switch, um, that was my first time being exposed to sort of um, an environment that I would encounter um, throughout the rest of my education mm-hmm. that was um, filled with students um, who were for the most part white and for the most part um, affluent. And then from there, um, I uh, struggled in my, in my first uh, year especially uh, to transition to the new academic environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do particularly well um, in my classes, um, but I got practice um, learning about sort of the new academic expectations mm-hmm. and how I can best navigate those to do well in mm-hmm. school. Um, and from there, I applied to a handful of private high schools, uh, and I ended up going to a boarding prep school for mm-hmm. high school. Um, so my middle school was kind of like a stepping stone um, yeah. to the next environment I would encounter. Um, and my high school was uh, a very, very privileged place, um, and a lot of students come from very privileged backgrounds, um, and many don't as well, mm-hmm. but there was definitely um, a, a big variety of the students um, that I encountered there. Yeah. Um, and the ac- academic expectations um, were also higher at my high school. So again, my middle school was like a nice little stepping stone between the academic expectations at my public elementary school mm-hmm. to what would um, come to be a lot of the most difficult academic um, years of my life yeah. so far. Wow. What have you learned about yourself by doing this research? Or have you been able to look at your prior experience in a new way by doing this research? Definitely. Um, I, w- one thing in particular that I've, I've noticed um, is that in attending many different schools um, and being exposed to a lot of different like expectations, um, I've been able to gain a lot of cultural capital that has helped me um, to do well in, in the new environments. Um, in essence, cultural capital is any kind of knowledge, skill, taste, or disposition mm-hmm. that helps individuals to um, do well in a certain environment. Um, so in my middle school, I um, quickly learned that it's really important to be able to communicate with adults and people in positions of power and authority um, really well, um, and that sort of only facilitates my success at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned in high school that I felt really comfortable talking to adults and faculty members and people in other positions of power um, at the institution, and that's definitely sort of helped me to build more social capital 
and to build strong relationships with faculty members and advisors that have only helped me find other opportunities, um, whether those are academic op opportunities or job opportunities, um, that have really helped me mm -hmm. to, um, I, I guess, to get to a better place. Yep. And so, right, and that leads right into what you said is most important to you, is mm -hmm. then to be able to parlay those into both having maybe some political and financial capital mm -hmm. when you end up graduating from Bowdoin Definitely. and moving on to the next phase of mm -hmm. your life. Um, what do you hope to do? Um, when you say, you know, you've left it very open to say, I want the skills and and resources and dispositions to be able to compete and succeed mm -hmm. um, in the next phase. Do you have thoughts about what that next phase? I do. Um, I am part of a uh, research fellowship called the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program. The ultimate goal of the program is to bring more students of color into the professoriate. That is to be a professor at a college or university. Um, and in order to do so, students have to go to graduate school, essentially. Um, and I plan to go to graduate school either in sociology or education um, once I graduate from Bowdoin. Um, I don't want to go directly to graduate school. Um, I hope to work for about two mm -hmm. years and then attend graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, in my preliminary thoughts for where I might want to work um, after I graduate, um, I think I would be happy working um, at a college or university or even um, at the secondary school level. Um, probably in an administrative position. Um, I'm currently working in admissions and I'm really liking the work that I'm doing so far and I could definitely see myself being an admissions counselor at a small uh, liberal arts school in particular. I can too. You would be fabulous. Thank you. So let's go right from there. What does a liberal arts education mean to you? I think the big draw to a liberal arts education for me was the focus on gaining a well-rounded understanding of the world. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in going um, to a university that would put me on a specific track um, to get a job, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't want to, um, for example, take um, courses in accounting to become an accountant. Instead, I would rather take courses in math to gain a better understanding of math that I would then be able to translate into um, anything, really, um, that I want to do. That's just an example. I'm, of right. course, uh, not studying math um, here at Bowdoin. <laughs> um, instead, I found um, a passion in the social sciences. Mm -hmm. um, Did you know that that was going to be where your passion was? No, definitely not at the time. Um, I was talking to my academic advisor um, on the first few days of arriving to campus, and we were picking courses, and I told her about some of my interests, and um, Professor Nancy Riley, um, who is a sociology professor, said that I might like sociology based on my interests. Mm. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm happy to take a sociology course. Um, and I took Sociology 101 and learned that a lot of the topics I'm interested in are sort of under the umbrella of sociology. Hmm. Um, and from there, I kept taking courses and... Um, I've been able to focus um, more specifically on my interest in race and class mm -hmm. um, that are really behind um, my core interest in sociology and education as well. What do you wish your professors knew about you? With the uh, Mellon program, um, mm -hmm. I was able to travel to Cape Town, South Africa this past January for a conference that brought together um, fellows from 
many um, institutions that support the Mellon program. Um, so it was essentially a conference that brought together students from all over the United States as well as the three universities in South Africa that are part of the program. And on that trip, um, I listened to uh, many, many lectures and many um, panels. And one panelist in particular told me that education should give students the opportunity to escape history. Um, and I found that to be very powerful um, because the, the underlying theory behind um, public education in the United States is that it can equalize the playing field and give every student um, the, the skills and the tools needed for them to compete in our society. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think that education operates in the same way for all demographics, whether that's um, African-American students, Latino students, students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, I don't think we're at a point where education functions in the same way for all groups. Um, and I would really like for all my professors to um, have an understanding of that. And I think if um, professors here at Bowdoin um, can all have an understanding that education doesn't operate in the same way for all students, um, then they will be in a position to uh, support all students regardless of where they come from. So if I'm hearing you correctly, if professors can't start with the basic acknowledgement of different students are going to be experiencing um, school differently and have had different uh, experiences of school up until the point where they're sitting in your classroom, that was a loud drop, um, then they have to start with that recognition in order to move on to the next piece of being able to help students transcend um, whatever, um, whatever... Race and class lines, race, for example. Yeah, race, class... And not maybe transcend, I, I would say maybe transcend the effects of race and class, right? Because we don't Definitely. need to send, necessarily give up mm -hmm. a, one's race or one's family back, you know, family of origin Definitely. background. But the idea of that those things do not have to determine um, your success. Mm -hmm. And I think it's um, very easy for students and professors alike, I can't speak from the professor's standpoint, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's easy to... You're fine. Uh, I think it's easy to overlook that people are coming from different places um, because everyone at first glance might seem like they're on the same playing field because we've all applied to and have been accepted to vote in. Um, so I feel that that might give the impression that everybody is on equal playing field. Um, but when you look more deeply into um, where students are coming from, um, the exposure they've had to the academic and social and cultural um, demands, of Bowdoin as an institution, then I think that's where we can really see differences that manifest in variable educational outcomes. You've heard it here. Walter Chapon is telling professors at Bowdoin, get woke. Correct. And I think that will really help to ensure that all students, regardless of background, can achieve their potential at yeah. Bowdoin. Yeah. Um, that is not to say that, Look that um, I say get woke and then you sound woke. well and you say, and you and you and you now are sounding far more prof professorial than I 
Keep on going. I like it. Um, I just think that um, I, I don't want to leave the impression that um, race and class background um, can be an excuse for um, different educational outcomes, um, but I think that they play a very important role. Um, and if you are going to understand um, students themselves and their successes and difficulties at Bowdoin, then it's definitely important to understand that race and class do have effects on how students navigate Bowdoin. Thank you so much, Walter. Thank you I for having me. I am so excited for you to become my colleague as a professor. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it.